In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Sam Selikoff about single-page application architecture and why you should think about building your client-side apps like desktop apps. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 106. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today I'm joined by my friend, Sam Selikoff. How's it going, Sam? It's going good, man. How you doing? Good. So, the reason I wanted to have you on the show again, uh, you were on uh, a couple months back, maybe longer than that. Time goes fast now that I'm an old man. Uh, we talked about kind of Ember.js and choosing Ember.js in the, in the age of React, but something that I have been getting into conversations with friends about uh, lately and something that I'd love to learn more about. And I think you're the perfect person to talk to about it is just this idea of like building stuff for the web from a sort of front end first perspective where people are building these like really rich client side apps. And I even see lots of people doing this who don't ever really talk about the back end. So I'm trying to figure out what are they even doing? Are they using Firebase? What does Firebase even let you do? Or are they building back ends? Or are they writing their own authentication? How are they doing session stuff? There's just so many different um, things that I think people are doing differently when they're really focused on like the front end world versus what someone like myself who's more versed in a more of a full stack back end first sort of rails or laravel style development workflow you know different than how i would do that sort of thing typically so i want to learn more about how people do this stuff and and what sort of things they're keeping in mind and what technologies and stuff uh they're using so yeah i thought it'd be cool to talk about that stuff yeah, I think there's there's a ton here, and um, definitely you know with Ember having used it for five or six years now, it's kind of it always kind of went in on that. It kind of saw that vision of the future and kind of just said we're going to go whole hog on this from the beginning. And so you know your your backend layer is going to be like a dumb API layer, and you're going to be focused on building like this fat client. So it kind of inverted um, that idea from before, where you do most of the stuff in the backend and and then just sprinkle the JavaScript on the front end kind of flipped that on its head and so yeah for about five or six years i think most of the ember community has been building javascript apps in this way yeah awesome so i think maybe a good place to start would be like what are some of the reasons you would decide to build a kind of fat client application or what are some of the benefits of choosing you know that approach because I can certainly think of a lot of additional challenges that come along with taking that approach versus when you have sort of full control over the uh, capabilities of the server and stuff like that, like you would traditionally have in a server rendered application. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, primarily it's, if you're talking about building a, just a complete JavaScript application, as opposed to sprinkling JavaScript on, you know, a traditional server rendered app, you're really talking about something like, you're going to build Trello, you're going to build Slack, you know, um, and more and more different kinds of applications too. But but traditionally, that was the class applications where this made the most sense. Um, Gmail, you know, Google Calendar, basically um, applications where you need to repaint small portions of the UI at a time and where the constraints of the traditional model where you have a full page refresh really prevents you from building the application that you're thinking about. Yeah, so stuff where I guess in the past might have been solely the domain of like a native desktop application. Like if you're thinking about, 
something that you might have built as a traditional desktop application, but trying to move it to the web, um, maybe it makes more sense to build it as a fat client application for the web than trying to shoehorn all this client-side interactivity into like a server-driven model. Yeah, exactly. So if you imagine um, you're building Slack and you want to build it on the web, you know, you input a message and you hit enter. Now, traditionally, that would submit a post request. Your whole page would go blank. The browser would start doing its loading behavior. And then you would get a new render from the server with the HTML of the everything that was there before except with your new message added. And um, that kind of experience wouldn't really work for an app like Slack. Yeah. And, you know, there's the server frameworks like Rails and others have been nudging towards solutions that help with this with things like TurboLinks. But, you know, the, the, the fat client approach with something like Ember said, you know, let's just take this from the beginning. If we were going to build this kind of application, what's the architecture that we would want from the beginning? And a lot of the patterns for the original Ember, the original architecture in Ember 1 came from Sprout Core, which pulled its patterns from Cocoa, which was used in native development on OS X. Yeah. And I think that is the most interesting sort of perspective to have when you're looking at this stuff is to sort of think of it as I'm building a desktop app. It happens to be like hosted in the browser. The browser is like the runtime that's running it. But aside from that, think about it as if it's a desktop app and every single constraint that you would have with a desktop app and every single way you would think about storing data and syncing data and stuff with a desktop app that you should be taking maybe those same approaches to trying to build a JavaScript app if you want it to kind of go in maybe the the smoothest way possible. Because I think one of the things that like worries me about it is, and maybe one of the reasons that I have traditionally stuck to building kind of stuff that's mostly on the server is it feels like by trying to create like a single page app, like something you might do with Ember, for example, that I am... I'm not, I'm just like introducing more complexity is what it feels like. Because in my head, I feel like I have this backend. It needs to do all this stuff. It needs to talk to the database. It needs to communicate with these third-party services and APIs and stuff. I have to do all that stuff no matter what in this code base by creating an SPA separate code base for my client. Aren't I now just like having to maintain two complex code bases instead of just trying to maintain um, you know, the back end and sprinkling JavaScript stuff on the front end, but trying to keep as much complexity in one place as, as possible. And I think that's one of the things that's kind of uh, made me stick with the approach that I've used for, for so long. So I guess what I'm most interested in talking about today and learning about is how do you push all this work onto the client and try and avoid having two complex code bases and instead just have all your complexity live in the client where that's like kind of the main place where you're doing the work and everything else is somehow as simple as possible. And I want to learn how you keep that stuff as simple as possible because in my head, I feel like there's all these things that you still have to do that still have to be complex and they have to go somewhere. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So maybe before we get any further with any specific questions, like do you have anything to say just about that kind of general perspective, I guess? Yeah, I think, my response to that is um, there's like two ways to think about this. And one is I think the vision that a lot of us have who are working on this kind of fat client approach um, for the future. And we see a future where we've seen the capabilities of building uh, JavaScript applications that are heavy in logic on, on the client side. And 
that's the vision that we're all building towards. And there's a, there's a gap between the reality today and that vision of the future. Um, and so the reality today is that by doing this, by going down this path, you do introduce a lot of complexity and you have to understand a lot about the architecture. And so there's some trade-offs in, in today's world. But even looking at over the last five years, how much closer we are to that vision, um, a vision where basically the back-end stuff becomes almost commoditized and you are able to put all of the complexity in the front end. And um, basically, you know, we can get into this, but by virtue of doing that, you can essentially commoditize the back end to the point where maybe your your traditional Laravel or Rails API just becomes a service like Firebase. And that's enabled by this thing. So in the same way that, you know, we now use Heroku to deploy our apps and we don't have to worry about uh, ops anymore because yeah. we've rationalized what the boundaries are to the point that that can just be handled by someone else and it's no longer the concern of the application developer. This is kind of the vision for the future of a JavaScript app. But again, the reality today is that there's elements where this is not there. Totally. Cool. So maybe a good place to start is, can you think of maybe some examples or any examples of things that maybe people would traditionally be doing on the back end that folks like you who are building these fat client apps have pushed to the front end, especially anything that maybe someone might not think to push to the front end or has to be done in a way that's maybe like unintuitive. Um, you know what I mean? Can you think of any examples of that? Yeah. So, I mean, at a high level, you're trying to do everything in the front end. So if let's say you had an endpoint in your back end that, um, you know, if you're familiar with like resourceful routing, yeah. um, in, and um, systems like Rails and Laravel, you could, um, let's say, create a publication or you could send some request. If it was non-resourceful, you could send a request to like slash post slash publish. And like that endpoint is not resourceful because it's not a basic CRUD operation on some database table backed entity. And so now that request is like fetching a post from the database. It's like, um, you know, maybe sending an email it's maybe calling a method on that post that's updating some attributes, but all that logic is done within this controller method on the back end. And so from that perspective, the back end is smart. So if you were doing things resource, like based on a resourceful controller, you would say, let's create a new resource. That's a publication that might have like a published at parameter and might have a relationship, a foreign key relationship to the post that is publishing. And then you can just create that publication. And so in the same, and the rails community went through this, you know, the, there was a, a move towards this to, to say, if we can think about things as these dumb resources that we just perform CRUD operations on, it actually simplifies a lot of things because it's surprising, but once you impose that constraint on yourself, you can model nearly everything as just a dumb uh, resource like that, that you perform yeah. CRUD operations on. Yeah. And I think that's definitely true. And I, I've given, I gave a talk about that once because I think it is a really interesting concept. And I think almost like forcing yourself to think within those constraints can actually help you sort of uncover different ideas in your domain and stuff like think concepts that you might not have named before because um, you weren't forced to sort of treat them like a resource. But one of the things that you said there that I think is going to be interesting to dive into a little bit more. And I think maybe this is a good example of the sort of small thing that like you might have done on the server before that in a fat client app you'd be doing on the client is something like setting the published at value for like a post that you're publishing from the client so if i was building like a, a, a laravel app the way i would normally build it and i had an action on the front end to take like a draft and publish it 
hitting that publish button would probably just be sending like an empty request or something to an endpoint that's going to actually trigger the the publishing. And on the server, I would be checking what the current time is at the time I received the request and setting the published app value to that value and saving it in the database. It sounds like when you're building like a fat client app, that's an example of this sort of thing that you'd be that you might have traditionally set on the server that you would probably be setting on the client. Am I right about that? Like you would check what's the time in the browser and I would send a request that's saying, hey, we want to update the published app to this. We're not telling the server to publish the blog post. We're just telling the server to up, like the client is deciding that it's publishing it and it's just updating the data to reflect that it's now in a published state versus the approach that I might have taken where I'm sort of making the server responsible for translating the user's intent, which is to publish the blog post into how the data is stored. Yep, that makes sense. In this case, I think you would still want the server to set it because it has the canonical time. Let's say there's some something that has to happen on okay. the server before updating it. In the same way, you know, Rails models default to having a created at and an updated at field. And yeah. the client is not going to be able to set that because that really depends on once it was actually updated in your server. And so in this case, it's not a complete example, but, um, you know, part of it is it is true that 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 record would have a published at that would get filled in by the back end in the same way the back end is still filling in like the auto increment IDs that it's assigning to new records. Um, but but here the difference is that you would absolutely have that modeled and the front end would be aware of the structure of the data and the attributes and stuff. So that's an example where maybe if you were not thinking in this way, you might just yeah, have a button that sends a request that does something. In the front end, you, again, thinking resourcefully, you're going to have a separate publication model. That publication model is going to be an actual model in your front end that you can create before you even send it to the back end. So you could create a publication, point it to a post and add other attributes to it. And then Basically, yes, there are fields where you would um, take them away from the back end and then put it in the front end. But I think something like published at is kind of in between. Maybe okay. another example would be, let's say you're reordering a list and your back end might be the one that guarantees that the, the positions are correct. Um, and so if you reorder something, you, need, you know, you move item one to five and you need to bump all the other items in the list, um, you know. If possible, we like to have the client, let's say you're doing a Trello board and you drag a card over. Again, the client needs to know those positions before the request has been fulfilled. So this is a good example of where if you can, you can make it so that the request that's being sent is like a list of basically patch requests that happens at once. But it's really the client telling the server, hey, here's the new position of all these items and you know if this is a valid request go ahead and persist that to the database but that's an example where the client knows ahead of time precisely because of this kind of rich interaction that you're building on the client that you that you wouldn't normally do um you know if you were doing this on a server way let's say you had like a list of items on a server app and there was an arrow or something and you just push the arrow that submits the request the back end reorders it and then sends up the new display with the new positions if that makes sense 
Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest reason resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. I think like a key point there that you kind of you've been talking about is like one of the ways you need to sort of change your mindset when you're building this sort of thing, I think, is the way that I've built stuff in the past and the way like sort of something I've been pretty intentional about a lot of the time is trying to prevent like leaking implementation details from like the server to the client. So like if an attribute comes from a table um, versus not coming from a table, maybe it's computed or something, the client never really knows the difference, that sort of thing. Right. But it sounds right. like when you're building like a fat client application like this, um, the, that boundary sort of moves to between like the user and the the JavaScript application instead of from like between the JavaScript application and the server where it's like okay and probably correct for the client to know all the implementation stuff about how everything's working because that's kind of its job now. Exactly. A great example of this is like a counter cache. So let's say you have a post with comments mm -hmm. and the post has like thousands of comments and you want to display the post in a list and show that it has like a thousand comments. Um, sure. But you don't want to have to load a thousand comments and then have a computed property to, to count that. Um, so traditionally you would have like a post and then you would have some kind of counter cache on the post that had like comments count on it. Yeah, so sure. that, that can be an attribute from the perspective of the client, although it's not a field in the, in the post's database table, right? Mm -hmm. It's being calculated. 
But then when you make these kind of fat client apps, you know, let's say you're doing a server app and that's fine because whenever that thing is rendered on the server, it's going to be using the freshest data. So if you were to submit a post request to create a new comment, the response that might have that comments count on the post it'll be up to date because it'll just be because you it'll just happen. you ran the query again before you rendered the html and sent it back over the wire and yeah exactly but the kinds of things you run into all the time when doing these fat clients is like well now you add a form where you just click a button that drops down a comment and you hit enter and create it and you need to make sure that data updates so yeah. you're not getting the luxury of a full page refresh and this is one of the areas you know where <laughs> as a programmer as programmers we know did you try turning it off and on again is like one of the best solutions <laughs> sure. to state management and all of computing because it's the luxury of having a, a clean start. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that um, you start building these big JavaScript apps, the traditional server apps get that luxury every single time the user interacts with it, which is nice because yeah, there, you, there could be bugs, but you don't see them because you get this fresh state every time. Yeah. Okay. So I think that example is interesting to maybe chew on a bit more because I imagine that the way that you're getting this counter cache in the first place, the server has to tell you what that count is for it to be practical in any way. Like you can't be requesting, hey, server, I need all the comment objects for this post. And then you count them on the client and cache them there, right? The server probably has to give you that cached value because it's just not efficient to do it any other way. So in that case, it sort of sounds like you have to duplicate some of that work like you're managing this cache on the client but you're also having to like update some you know cache value of this either in like i know rails makes it easy for you to have like a a counter cache column on a table right like denormalizing it a little bit so it'll automatically keep that up to date for you but you have to do the configuration to make that happen on on the server so like is is that how you have to do it are there ways to to avoid some of this like duplicated effort Yeah. So in this case, you know, there's in Ember, we call them computer properties. Let's say you had a post with 10 comments loaded in your Ember data store on the client and you could have a computed property um, called comments count on your post, which would which would look at that array of comments that were loaded and then just do like a dot length. It's like an array in JavaScript. Sure. So let's say you just had a post with like 10 comments. And it would be practical in that sense to say this is derived from this data. And every time I'm rendering this post, I know I have all the comments loaded. Mm -hmm. But like you said, when you're dealing with something like a post with many comments, like this becomes impractical just due to the size. But just as an aside, I will say there are many, many times by having your all your domain logic modeled in Ember, computer properties end up being one of the nicest things. And you are rendering derived data from your your object graph that's in the client without needing something like this. So the counter cache example is like is like one due to scale. But the general idea here, this architecture that you read a graph of data into your client side cache and then render derived from that, you know, properties derived from yeah. that, it works out like beautifully 80 to 90% of the time. You know, that's mostly what yeah. you're really doing. So would an example of that, like an example of that where you don't run into like, okay, so the stepping back a bit, the post comments one, is it's not an edge case but it's one of those situations where it's like the numbers could be so high that you probably aren't going to have all that stuff loaded in memory all the time that right. has to kind of get queried from somewhere right. but in other situations like um maybe you have a to-do app or like a note-taking app or something and you were going to show the count of to-dos or the count of 
notes that you've created so far all that stuff probably is living in the in the client somewhere just like for example like i'm looking at my screen right now and i have apple notes open and it doesn't show me like a count of all the notes that i've created but i imagine that it it could and all these notes like live on my computer like they live in the cloud too but they're all on my computer right now too at the same time you know exactly and and that kind of thing is what makes the the ui stuff easier so let's say um, you know, on, 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 I run a site called Embermap, which has video series. And mm-hmm. so let's say a series has, you know, max, our biggest series has like 11 videos. So when we code that page, we just say, yeah, when we're fetching a series, we fetch all of its videos. And then let's say you can just throw a video count in the top of the list. And then when we go to add editing tools, you know, if we say like add a video, we just know that that video count is going to be it's just going to be rendering derived from that client side cache. Yeah. And so just by virtue of me saying store, create video pointing to that series, every data that's derived off that is going to be accurate because that store is like your source of truth. So yeah. that's why a lot of times it works out um, or even like a, a full name property that's derived from first name and last name, right? This sure. is no longer like a third attribute on your person. It's derived from first and last name. And so you start editing that data and because it's all rendering from that source of truth, it kind of works. So yeah, that's yeah, the, yeah. that's the beauty and the benefit of modeling your data in this way. And this basically normalizing, it's a lot of the same benefits of normalizing data in the back end, right? But you have it normalized and you have that graph with relationships read right into the client. And now you're just working as if, as if that client side cache is your database. And then you have to run into the situations where, you know, there's constraints due to size and then you do things like the counter cache and then you just have to basically tell the system like if I create a, a post and or if I create a new comment and it successfully creates in the back end, the back end needs to make sure to send along this refreshed post model yeah. with the new comments count, let's say. So doing something like where the server would send you that counter cache when you're building a fat client app like this, instead of that being sort of like your your default mode like it would be in my case building a server rendered app where i'm always thinking about like making the server do all the work and sending everything to the client in like the sort of pre-computed the most pre-computed way possible you're sort of flipping it around where it's like your your default mentality is have all the data on the client i like in a perfect world like your database would be on the client the realities are it can't so you have to do some things and make optimizations and stuff to work around that. But like your mental model and your mentality is like in a perfect world, the data is all here, like right in front of our face and we can compute anything we need to, to compute. And it's the raw data, not like some massaged data. Now it, it, is, it is, it can be massaged. Like you've talked before about having resources that aren't backed by a database, let's say like a session, <laughs> sure. let's say, and that's, that's fine. So there's still a point of abstraction, but it's a light point of abstraction. It's so like you said, you're working with kind of raw normalized data and yes, you're working with a subset of the universal set of data that's on the server. But when you're rendering a page or a widget or an interaction, you're thinking, what is the data that I need for this thing to function? Like I need the video, I need all of its series. I'm going to declare that somewhere, you know, maybe in the route. I'm going to say this route depends on, um, you know, series with ID one and all of its videos. And just by doing that, you know, ideally your tooling is taking care of fetching the data from the server. And it's also watching if there's any new data creation on the client and all your rendering logic is just flowing from that. Got it. And that's kind of where 
like Ember's Ember data layer, right? Kind of shines as it's kind of an abstraction around trying to make sure that you can fetch stuff from the server and that any new resources you're creating, you're able to sort of create them on the client without first sending it to the server and then getting the response back from the server before you sort of add it to your your local data store. Exactly. You're no longer, the mental model isn't fetch this data from the server and render it. It's really render data from my local from my cache, from my Ember yeah. data store. And then how that store gets populated is a separate question. But when I'm thinking about what I'm doing here, I'm rendering from the store. Yeah. And then even from like an implementation perspective, like if you were going to say you weren't using a, a framework that has as many conveniences and opinions as Ember that gives you something like Ember data that tries to make it really easy to do this. If you had to build like that sort of data layer itself, conceptually, you wouldn't be thinking about it maybe the way that like I might build a uh, if you take a server rendered application that had a little bit of JavaScript on the front end and say I had like a form for adding a new to do and I was doing that with an Ajax request the way that I would probably do it in the sorts of apps uh, sort of applications I normally build is you fill out the form you know maybe there's like two or three fields you hit submit. It kind of spins for a second until the res- until the post request hits the server and the response comes back and the response that came back would be like the JSON representation of that newly created to do and I would throw that um, into like my local piece of data and render that on the screen. Building the stuff that way that you guys build stuff, it sounds like if you were going to implement that stuff yourself, um, you would be putting that to do item into the data store like before it ever went to the server or maybe right at the same time exactly you want you basically quickly want an identity map where you can shove the new data that's being created either by you or someone else again because you're not having the luxury of uh, having these full page refreshes so if you think about let's say you're looking at an issue thread on github and yeah you just submitted a comment so you could just render that new comment but what if there was a new comment created in between the time when you created yours and when it was persisted So this is why you want an identity map so that if you get back data, let's say you get back your comment and then other comments, but you know, um, you, you want some sort of relationship aware identity map that those get read into so that there's just a single graph of normalized data so that your interface is in sync. It's basically like, yeah, let's think about back when react was first announced and you're talking about, I have an unread message up here that tells me I have four unread messages and then I have like my four messenger windows down here. How can I solve the situation where I click on a thing and I read it and then that goes down to three up here? Yeah. And and Ember, Ember's answer and also like a lot of the JavaScript community's answer these days is like to have some sort of client side cache that's like an identity map that normalizes the data and that you render from as opposed to just treating those um, JSON payloads as your source of truth. Yeah, totally. So one thing that that makes me think about actually, um, like one of the reasons that I would do things the way that I sort of described where I would wait for the response from the server before sort of storing that information is because like I need to know like what is the ID of this newly created thing. So when you're building stuff with with Ember, um, maybe it abstracts this away from you. I don't know. But are you doing a lot of like client side like UUID generation for things? Are you still relying on auto incrementing IDs from the server or do you do a little bit of both or? There's use cases for both. The default is that um, if you just store create record on the client, you get a new post record or comment record, let's say. 
and the ID field is blank. And that's actually how it knows it's new because it doesn't have an ID. It assumes if it has an ID, that means it's coming from the server and it's it's um, persisted. So And then in like kind of the background uh, out, outside of this whole like creation of the record process, Ember is kind of going to reconcile that for you like you add it to the data store now as a result of it entering the data store ember's gonna be like okay i better make like a request to actually sync this up with the server too when the response comes back from the server the server's like hey i stored it for you also here's the id you can slap that in and kind of patch that missing field on that resource exactly so this lets you build whether you want like lazy or optimistic uis so you could just say like each over your to-dos and let's say you click new to-do and that fourth to do in that list doesn't have an ID, so it's new. So now you have like a to do dot is new um, property, which is going to tell you. So if you wanted the UI to be different, like let's say you wanted to have it be fifty percent opacity because it's not saved yet or something like that, you enter your data. You know it's all bound in the same way to the attributes, and then you click save, and that's going to have an action where you call like uh, new to do dot save, and the whole time you can still, you have complete control over what the UI looks like based on the state of your store. So again, if you wanted to like keep that new to-do in a modal before appending it to the list, you could say each to-do's filter by is saved and then render those over here. And then you could say like each to-do filter by is new and render those over here. And then once you click save, you're gonna call to-do.save. And then once it comes back from the server, it would just move, your UI would just move because you're declaratively rendering that part from the store and it's just based on the state of that to do so yeah that's the idea yeah that makes sense um use the term optimistic ui which uh i i think i've heard it tossed around here and there but i haven't really thought about it too much is that sort of how people talk about these um applications where uh kind of like what we're saying where you create a record and the ui is going to act as if it exists even if it hasn't necessarily been like synchronized up to the server yet Exactly. So let's say you are on Trello and you create a new card and you type some text and then hit enter. Um, it's going to be instant. I mean, even if you had unplugged your computer at that point, um, it would probably just appear as if it had been saved the way like uh, iOS and OSX apps work in the same as in the notes app like you referred to. If you type in the notes app, it's not going to just wait. It's going to act as if everything went through. And that's what they call optimistic UI because they're optimistic about the fact that the persistence is actually going to work. Yeah. Like 99.9% of the time it's going to work. So just act as if it's going to work and then treat like the failure case as the edge case instead of how we normally do things where everything is like a very, uh, you know, non-optimistic where we're kind of expecting that things are going to go wrong and we don't want to show something on the screen until we know for sure that it's actually done or something. A little bit of a different like mental model i guess right so the pessimistic ui case you know something there that might make sense is sending an email so you wouldn't want to show the user that your email has been sent optimistically have them close the client and then have the sale fa- uh, fail have the save yeah. fail because that's important they thought they sent the email and they didn't so for sure. some actions you want to do pessimistic ui but the larger point here is like you want to give the developer control, the yeah. product, product developer control. And in order to do optimistic UI, um, you need a, basically you need a client side cache of some sort. Yeah, that's interesting. Actually, the email example is, is funny because when you mention that, that makes me realize that like the email client I use, which is Airmail, they actually do treat that in like an optimistic way because I've seen 
how they handle it when I try to quit too fast. Um, so maybe this know. is a good example to kind of talk about a little bit because it kind of talks about how, okay, well, in like a pessimistic UI, yeah, you just kind of like show the loading state until like it's for sure. But an example of how you might do something in a more optimistic way, you know, like I'm talking about with this airmail thing is the way that it works is I send the email. It kind of does its little swoosh noise as if the email is going out and I think all is good. But if I try to like command Q to quit right away, they throw up like a dialogue that kind of says just kidding like, we haven't sent your email yeah yet. We, uh, you know there's still like one email like waiting to be sent do you actually want to like force quit or do you want to wait until it actually sends before you quit and that's kind of like an interesting piece of ui that like would never exist if you were doing something in a pessimistic way but by by going that route like they have to do this little bit of extra work to sort of handle the case if i try to basically interrupt or screw something up um, but it makes the re- the the ninety nine percent use case feel really smooth and fast all the time. So I think this is an example of the trade offs we were talking about at the beginning of the ep- of the episode, which is that by building a JavaScript application with its own cache on the client, you unlock new capabilities to build richer UIs. But at the same time, you are adding complexity because you now have the potential for stale data at any moment. And if you think about kind of the the vanilla, you know, Laravel vanilla Rails app that you're building for the first time, you basically get to punt on this problem completely because you just get to assume that you're always working with the freshest canonical data, right? Every refresh, you basically just don't have to deal with this problem. Now, you might get into situations where even on GitHub, let's say you, before they added like real-time updating of that feed or Stack Overflow is another one. Let's say you go to Stack Overflow feels more like a traditional app right you're clicking around full page refreshes you click edit on a post that you had written or you you start to fill out an answer and then you take a long time then you go you go away for a cup of coffee you come back you're looking at that page that you requested from the server but now it could be stale right yeah um and so server apps do i guess the point i'm trying to make is that server apps do have to deal with this notion of stale data but they get to punt on it for a much much longer and it turns out to be a pretty tricky problem to deal with so yeah this is kind of the trade-offs where um yeah this is the kind of trade-offs yeah yeah and i was gonna say like in when you think about it in your head you kind of think that uh with the client side stuff okay the state is going to be harder to deal with because how do i know when new information is on the server without it getting pushed to me in some way right and on in the server rendered version of that world like the same problem is there in terms of like unless you navigate around and click to a new page which causes the data to refresh almost by like coincidence, not because like you intentionally tried to refresh it, right. then you're never going to know that the data refreshed anyways. And um, because of that, I know of tons of server rendered applications that still make use of things like WebSockets to try and keep the UI up to date because there are a lot of applications, even if they're like traditional Rails applications or Laravel applications where they're rendered on the server, there are still a lot of applications where the way that people use them means like sitting on the same screen a lot of the time, you know? Right. Yep. Um, even if you're not doing client-side routing and stuff where people are clicking around the UI a lot, um, yeah, like even something like Help Scout or something, if you just kind of have that open, treating it as like an inbox, you kind of want new stuff to show up in the inbox when it happens. You don't want to have to click to a different link and then click back or have to manually refresh the page. So the problem is still there. Um, it's just like, it's not as you immediately get more, you get obvious. M- yeah, you get more um, like freebies because 
you know, you clicking on that link to view your inbox happen to refresh your trash as well, just because you're getting a full page refresh. But if yeah. you hadn't considered that, if you were building a client side app, that trash could get out of sync, let's say, um, because you didn't do a full page refresh. Yeah, um, totally. So yeah, I think this is one of the things where, you know, I was talking about this kind of vision for the future and how to deal with this problem head on. And this is one of the ideas where it's like, again, uh, if you can pull this off, a great solution here is to have that indirection layer, that cache on the client. And now if you're declaratively rendering your entire UI from that cache, you can now address the problem of how to keep that cache in sync and up to date separately. And if you do something like, and I've done this before in Ember apps where we built it with traditional Ajax network requests and decided like enough people were using this app concurrently and things were out of sync that we didn't want to just like pull the back end or whatever. Um, and if a single user used it, we could guarantee things would be in sync, but we just didn't always consider like, oh, there's another post because someone else built it. So then we just added a WebSocket layer that listened for new data creation basically in the, in the database on the server and then would just send events to the client yeah. of everything new that's been created. And because the data was normalized, the Ember app could read all those new events. Even if you're just sitting there not triggering an, ash, an action that was initiated by you, that new normalized data gets pumped into your Ember data store, your local store, and the UI just updates. And so that was yeah. a really cool example of this yeah, kind of working. Yeah, that's cool. That makes a lot of sense. So basically you're thinking of like the actual UI. It only talks to like the local data store. It is like completely ignorant to the fact that there even is an API or exactly. anything like that. Exactly. And the data store is actually what sits between the UI and where that data ultimately gets synchronized with the cloud, essentially. And yep. that kind of lets you make changes to how the communication is happening between the data store and the API without the UI piece of things ever having to even be aware or care. Exactly. I mean, this is actually how we develop Ember apps. We have a tool we use called Mirage, which is a way to simulate your server. So when we start mm -hmm. a new app or even build a new feature in an existing app, we start with the front end make the new page and then say, okay, yeah, I need the video. Um, I need this new podcast model. I'm going to expect to be able to hit the podcast endpoint or whatever, but it's going to be a model in my Ember data store. And using Mirage, you just define that and you can create some dummy data that's going to populate that Ember data store. So you can build your entire feature and actually write tests against different states of that server without involving the network at all. And then you basically know what needs to change on the back end, which ends up being like 5% of the work because it's just, you know exactly what you need. You've already written your front end and then you just plug it in and uh, you're good to go. So it's, it's, this is where like just got kind of going all in on this philosophy of how to develop lets you clearly define these boundaries and some really cool things come out from that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I think something to maybe point out or to maybe touch on a little bit here that I think is is helpful because this was something that really helped um, sort of this approach to building stuff. I want to say click for me, but I don't think that's really correct because I still haven't built something this way. But I just mean in terms of like, I get why you would do that now and I sort of understand it better and I understand I think the mental model better is um, something I've seen people talk about in kind of like the front end communities of building things in like an offline first way like sort of assume that the user doesn't even have like a network connection and at first that sounds like okay but most people do whatever but when you kind of think about like the spa as a desktop app sort of metaphor again like all the desktop apps that you use are built offline first and that's sort of 
helps you understand like why things work the way they do or how they need to work. Like if I open up my laptop on an airplane and I want to add a new note to Apple notes, I should be able to just add a new note and it would get saved. And when I close the app and open it again, it's still there. And, um, when I have network access again in the background, it's going to notice. And it, maybe I added a note from my phone before I ever opened my computer again, after I got off the plane, it's going to refresh that list because it notices it has network access now and it's going to save anything new to the, the network and stuff like that. But thinking about it as like, I need to build it such that the user experience would be as correct as possible, even without being able to talk to the server kind of makes you realize like why so much of the logic should be on the client, just like with a desktop app, like all the code that makes Apple notes work like Apple notes is on my computer, not like on Apple servers somewhere. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and it's, uh, yeah. Thinking like a mobile app, you know, Twitter, you yeah. um, go in the elevator or you ride the subway in New York and you still expect to be able to open Twitter and see the last 100, 200 tweets that you were reading. And um, you know you don't have internet, but you know it's going to handle that case. I can still scroll through them. And I can even click on tweets um, and even favorite them um, and, and browse some threads that I've already loaded um, because that data is just sitting on, on my phone. And um, yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. So to, th- this is like, this touches on some of the the stuff that has been a focus in the JavaScript app community over the last few years, because there's a tension between um, an app that has those capabilities and what the web is traditionally known for, which is fast initial load and good reach. So there's, again, people who are interested in using the web and JavaScript to build applications like this, but there's a tension because as you move more logic to the front end, uh, maybe you slow down your initial load and that kind of is like a breakage in some people's minds of what yeah. the web is uh, supposed to be about. And then so that's when you get kind of these server rendered uh, versions of your client app that try to address this. But at a high level, you're, you're absolutely right. Thinking about thinking when I was first starting with Ember development, thinking about uh, an iOS app that I would build and how it would handle the offline case and still functioning, but also being able to upload any changes and resync those changes that had been made over time is a is a great way to think about this stuff yeah i think what's cool is like like you kind of mentioned the web is known for um like traditionally optimizing for the data gets to you really fast but you basically have to download every page separately over time and when people started building these like spas like the first complaint i guess is like oh but now i have to download this like 600 kilobytes of javascript or maybe it's four megs of javascript whatever and it sounds like a lot and it's slow on first load but when you're thinking in your head like okay this isn't a website anymore it's a it's an application that's using the browser as its runtime then you shouldn't really be comparing it to like what it's like to get the data from a website you should be comparing it to like what's the experience downloading an app from the app store or something you know what i mean and then it's like oh yeah there is like i do have to download it you know what i mean right like and and what's kind of interesting is that because like everybody is still like it's still hard to get people to just like be okay with that right you know what i mean because it's like and and with web technologies oftentimes you do have to re-download load the bundle frequently and stuff like that so sure it can like eat up your bandwidth and stuff like that whatever um but because everyone wants to get like the spa experience to be as close to the 
the server rendered experience in terms of like fast initial page load and stuff because it sort of has to compete with other sites on the internet that are delivered that way. I think what we're going to end up with long term is situations where like downloading an SPA by just visiting the site where it's hosted, you get some really small bundle and stuff and it's like way smaller than anything you would download from the app store. So it's almost like this forcing function that's going to make JavaScript applications like actually much lighter than something that you might download in the traditional way, at least in, in terms of how it feels for it to be delivered with everyone doing all this code splitting stuff and everything that they can possibly do to try and make everything only come in the smallest chunks possible only when it's needed pay as you go basically yeah um and definitely there's already work going there and it it is a good constraint that we face you know you you click on a link from twitter that hits a website you do want it to load fast regardless of what it is so you so you want those constraints are good and they force us to think about what does need to be shipped just to render that initial page versus you know i'm i'm loading up my um, budgeting software on the internet and i don't care that it takes a little bit to load because you know it's it's loading up or gmail or whatever it's going to take a little bit longer I, it's not, I don't care that it doesn't need to load in 0.2 seconds or else i'm going to lose a new user it's they're going to their bank to sign in to see something and they expect that delay but yeah. but the constraints do are forcing people to try to bend that trade-off curve and think about ways whether it's server-side rendering or code splitting or whatever to um make to, to keep the initial f- page load fast while still being able to deliver an app-like experience, something that truly competes with a native application. Yeah, cool. Basically, like, you can, the, another way to ask this is, do you think Twitter app, we should be able to build that with web technologies? And I think the JavaScript community would say, yeah, we should. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So there are two major problems with relying on your users to submit bug reports to you when they find something broken in your app. Number one, you can't discover all bugs this way. And number two, some users don't even bother submitting bug reports. They just wait for you to fix it, and if you don't, they just leave the service. Now, the best software teams practice proactive error monitoring, which means you detect all the errors in your production apps and services in real time, and then you can debug important errors in minutes or hours, often before your users even notice. Uh, Teams from big companies you might have heard of like Twilio, CircleCI, Instacart, they use Rollbar to do this. With Rollbar, you get a real-time feed of all your errors so you know exactly what's broken in production, and Rollbar automatically collects all the relevant data and metadata you need to debug those errors so you don't have to waste time sifting through logs. Debugging errors with Rollbar is crazy fast. You get the exact stack trace linked directly into your code base, the request parameters to easily reproduce the issue yourself, a data on which user is affected so you know if it's the same user repeating the same error again, what browser and operating system, basically everything you need all in one place. They also have this awesome telemetry feature that's kind of like getting a black box recorder after a crash but for errors. It shows you all the browser events leading up to that error. Uh, So if you aren't using Rollbar already, there's a special offer just for full stack radio listeners if you head over to rollbar.com slash full stack radio create an account and install rollbar in your application rollbar will give you a 100 gift card that you can spend to support any of your favorite open source projects at open collective so thanks to rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week back to the show so something that i'm kind of wondering about and i don't know how much of this like ember for example does for you automatically or how much of it you have to think about yourself um when you're in these situations where you have no network access, but you still want people to be able to do everything with the app that isn't totally impossible to do without network access, what does it look like to make that work? Like, 
say like the Twitter example where um, I'm like posting a tweet and then I navigate away and the tweet hasn't actually gone into the world yet because I have no network access, but now I'm scrolling through my timeline and I favorite a couple of tweets or maybe I retweet a tweet like all this stuff, all these actions have to get like batched up and queued somewhere to be able to run once network access actually is available. How much do you have to think about that yourself? How much of it is handled automatically? What sort of solutions are out there to kind of make that as painless as possible? Yep. So there's no first party solutions. It's just that the architecture has been set up in such a way that the boundaries let folks kind of deal with this problem on their own. Um, You know, there's, this situation, I think you can break this down into a case where it's just one person, let's say on the notes app, just yourself. And then there's yep. issues where you have multiple users doing it and you have to deal with like conflicts on the back end. So sure. setting aside that conflict resolution for now and just taking the simpler case, you know, there's, there's add-ons you can install in the Ember ecosystem that, for example, if the internet is off and you did that post.save, what it's going to do is take that um, network request, let's say a post with the URL with the request body, all those attributes that you were going to send. And it just saves that to either local storage. I think I saw one that, that has done like index DB a, a while ago, but basically just save that request. And then again, because that data cache is that abstraction layer, it's going to tell the data layer that, Hey, we actually successfully saved this as if it worked. Um, and so the Ember app can continue on. The user can continue on as if it worked. And then once internet has been restored, just run through those requests and send those to the server to update the server to that canonical yeah. state. So obviously there's a lot of complexity here, but that is kind of a one quick and dirty approach you can do. And I've seen it work sure. with, with success. Um, another is more, more um, sophisticated approach, something that um, Dan Gebhardt has been working on called Ember Orbit. He's the author of the JSON API spec and he's helped out a lot with Ember data, but he has this whole um, Ember Orbit is kind of something that's, analogous to ember data but it works with logs and so you every every operation everything you do whether it's deleting or changing something is an operation and those logs have just like how sql database um, works with logs and masters and slaves you would have that same idea where your client side cache has log entries and then once you get online again you can say oh what is the log entry on the server where am i at let's get up to date so it's going to involve some notion of that um, sure. where you have a counter and you can see how far behind you are if you need to catch up. But today, um, you definitely need to do that yourself. But there's good, again, there's good boundaries and there's definitely teams doing this with, with I think, definitely with Ember and I'm sure with all the all the JavaScript frameworks. Yeah. And I think the other important thing to remember, like because it sounds like there's complexity there that you have to deal with, of course, right? But again, if you're thinking like, I'm trying to build like a the equivalent of a native app that's hosted in the browser, this isn't like, a piece of complexity that doesn't exist in native apps like you have this exact same problem with a native app and you would have to come up with a solution for this anyways and people have had to come up with a solution for this for any network enabled native app for the last 25 years or whatever right exactly and like you said earlier you'd also don't avoid this really with the server app it's just you get to punt on it more but have you ever you know written a long email in gmail or a long comment on github and try to hit save and you lost it somehow something happened you know you're at starbucks and then you lost internet or on a plane and you hit back and you yeah, lost that sure. data so yeah. thinking about this and again this is where like there is a vision here where one day no javascript developer will have to do this on their own there will be a first party tool that makes this stuff easy out of the box so that's kind of what i that's that's like this is the kind of stuff that we're working towards 
Well, there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Sam Selikoff about single-page application architecture. We also recorded a part two to this conversation, which will be out in the next episode, where we talk about strategies for keeping your backend APIs simple and how to use tools like Firebase to eliminate parts of your backend entirely. Thanks to Cloudinary and Rollbar for sponsoring the podcast this week. See you next time.